This is a podcast about Jeopardy. Hello and welcome to Potent Potables. I'm Kyle. And I'm Emily. We competed against each other on Jeopardy. Kyle ended up winning seven games. And we've been chatting about the show ever since. Each show, we start with analysis of this week's Jeopardy episodes. Then we move into a deep dive on a question or category from one of those episodes. And we wrap it up with a quiz. So this week, December 9th, we have a returning champion in Jennifer Quayle, uh, who had a pretty impressive three days last week, and uh, we see that that impressiveness continues. Yeah, it really does. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Yes, she is. So on Monday, we have uh, Ann Bauer, a program manager from Seattle, Washington. Jeff Kushner, a healthcare regulator from Baltimore, Maryland. And Jennifer Quayle, a wine tasting consultant from Dwajak, Michigan, whose three day cash winnings total $90,300. So the Jeopardy writers were getting cute with us in Single Jeopardy. Cute, I think, is a bit reductive. I was going to say awesome. Okay, so you're a big Pokemon fan? I dabbled in the Pokemon for a while in my younger years. I will say I am not familiar with the more recent traditions. I er, uh, Additions, I should say. I'm, I'm more traditional. Uh, I believe there are 151, and anything after that is a lie. So... Okay. That's a strong opinion on something I have no real expertise in. Don't at me. <laughs> all right. So we have the categories Pikachu Choo, uh, which was all uh, train questions, uh, Geodude, um, which were geography questions uh, with like frat boy phrasing. Yeah, bro. Oddish, um, which if there was a hidden theme there, I didn't see it. It seemed like it was just odd facts, which like what else is trivia? Um, <laughs> but <laughs> I guess they, I guess they needed it to fit the Pokemon theme. Uh, Slowpoke, um, which was all slow stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, nine Tails, which I got confused because none of them had to do with the number nine, but then it was two in each of the first four clues and and then the one in the thousand dollar level was another was a single yeah uh tail so so through the course of the category um nine i think they were all short stories were mentioned um and then the last category of course was pokemon yes um and they did not get to the thousand dollar clue that was the last category they went to um and they left that one on the board but jeopardy did reveal that clue on their social media so they they have a video on their on their youtube channel and on the on their facebook that actually reveals the thousand dollar clue so i will make sure that our listeners are aware of what that thousand dollar clue would have been oh i didn't go look at it i'm going to be finding out when you read it given that you have stated that it is something you are uh, utterly unfamiliar with you're probably not gonna get it okay <laughs> but maybe right. maybe i mean i mean that's what trivia is Jennifer found the Daily Double. She found it at clue number 25. It was in the Nine Tails category at the $1,000 level. Um, 
Uh, she wagered 1500 and the clue was, in a classic tale, General Zaroff explains that Cape Buffalo is not, quote, the most dangerous game, end quote, to hunt. This is. And she correctly responded, um, what is man? Have you ever read that story? I haven't. And actually, I think I had never heard of it. So I went and looked it up on Wikipedia and like, yikes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> most dangerous game. That It's a, it's fun. Yeah. If you enjoy that kind of thing. <laughs> I, I kind of do. So maybe I should, I mean, it's a short story. So maybe I should go read it. Yeah. You know, 13 year old me in eighth grade enjoyed it a lot. Mm. And I actually haven't read it since. I should probably go back and reread it again. But that's always stuck with me. Man, is the most dangerous game. It sort of puts a new spin on... I feel like I've seen many a television episode with sort of similar themes that I now can see as like sort of alluding back to um, possibly the short story. In particular, there's an episode of uh, the unfortunately kind of short-lived Joss Whedon show Dollhouse um, that comes to mind. Unfortunately, short-lived can describe a number of Joss Whedon. Yeah, there's, there's another one that's even more unfortunate and even more short-lived. I mean, we can say Firefly, right? Like, we won't oh, get yeah. in trouble. No. Yeah, yeah, no, no, we can, yes. Okay, uh, yeah. Firefly is the one I'm thinking of. Um, oh, yeah, Firefly was Firefly. so good. So good. Ugh, anyway, let's not, let's not get too sad. All right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, so tell us about this Pokemon clue, Kyle. This is the category that actually had questions about Pokemon. Of course, all the others, the names were, are, are, you know, alluding to names of Pokemon, but uh, this category actually has questions about it. And the thousand dollar clue that was not revealed is this anime character picked Pikachu as his Pokemon in the TV show's first episode, and they soon became best friends. Hmm. I don't know if I know it. Does it start with an A? It does start with an A. It's not Ash, is it? It is Ash. Oh, hey, cool. I knew a thing. Nice. Ash Ketchum. His last name is Ketchum because it's for children. So. Yep. All right. Cool. Yeah, you nailed it. Yay. Congratulations. Yeah. As an adult, I realize that the whole thing is just a big money grab. But of course, the TV show, he picks Pikachu, which in the original games is not an option for your first choice. You can choose Bulbasaur or Squirtle or Charmander, and of course Squirtle is the correct choice. Don't at me. But uh, they re-released the original games as uh, um, yellow version, and basically the only change is you can pick Pikachu at the beginning of the game. Mm. Anyway. Yeah. Man, this is oh. taking me back. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if any of them would have gotten it. I don't know. Jennifer seems nerdy. I mean, as we learn later, she has watched Star Wars many, many, many times. So maybe yeah. she was into Pokemon. That's right. Could be. Anyway. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, uh, Jennifer has a commanding lead at 10,500. And as I think I've said before, if you get to the end of the Jeopardy round with 10,000, you're in pretty good shape. Because uh, that, that usually necessarily means that the other two are pretty far behind. Right. Yeah, there's 18,000 total on the board. Um, and, you know, you can end up with a with a combined score across the three of more than that because of the daily double. But, yeah, you, you, have, to, you have to have done pretty well to be at 10,000 at the end of the single Jeopardy round. Yeah. So double Jeopardy, we get quotes of note, real and unreal places. 
elected twice to the Rock Hall of Fame. That was a fun category. Mm-hmm. From Sea to Shining Sea, which I'm pretty sure is a category title they've used before. Psychology jargon and have an artsy Christmas time. <laughs> elected twice to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I I did better with that one than I anticipated. I always assume that if it's popular music or like, you know, modern music, I'm just not going to do well. But I got mm-hmm. three of them, which felt pretty good. But it, it's always interesting to to learn about that because I, I don't know if any other Hall of Fame is like it in that you can be inducted multiple times yeah in different in different settings i mean i'm i don't know if sports hall of fames necessarily like if you're inducted as a player and then as a coach i think i think basketball does that I'm, I, uh, but i don't know about the other other sports but yeah the rock hall of fame you can be inducted a number of times for different things yeah so yeah i didn't realize that or i guess i never thought about that until this clue until this category I got a couple of them. You know, I don't generally do very well on any kind of modern music categories, um, unless it is in 1998 and 99. I was um, going to say, unless it's Chumba Wumba. <laughs> right. Uh, or, or the Goo Goo Dolls. I, I'm good on those ones. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But I did get, um, I got Eric Clapton, and mm-hmm. I got the $2,000 clue, Stephen Stills. Yeah. I felt the uh, middle name in a harmony singing trio kind of like it, there was one option. <laughs> I mean, I guess like Peter, Paul, and Mary are a harmony singing trio that use their three names, but not that it was clearly not them, you know? Yeah. Um, and it's like, not I, Emerson, I, Lake, and Palmer or anything like that. Yeah. So. I, I, I am hearing of them for the first time. <laughs> um, uh, you should check yeah. them out. Some pretty cool, pretty All cool right. instrumentals. Yeah. So yeah, it seemed like there was sort of one obvious harmony singing trio who used their who used their three names as their as their band name. Daily Double number two, the first of the Double Jeopardy round, was at clue number thirteen at the sixteen hundred dollar level in Have an Artsy Christmas Time. Uh, Jennifer uncovered it, um, and uh, the clue was she wagered four thousand. And the clue was a collaboration of brother composer and sister librettist. This opera version of a brother and sister kid's tale is a Yuletide tradition. Um, and she correctly responded, Hansel and Gretel. That's uh, Engelbert Humperdinck, is that right? Yes, I believe yeah. it is. And actually now that's making me think about his librettist sister, whose name I don't know. Librettist Adelheid Veta. Interesting. And Jennifer got it. Yep. Um, and then a few clues later, we get Daily Double number two at the $2,000 level in From Sea to Shining Sea. Anne uncovered it and wagered 5000 and looked very anxious, but got it easily. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Greek for to cleanse gives us this word that describes an experience that relieves pent-up emotions. And the correct response there is cathartic. I almost said catharsis, uh, which would have been Ooh. incorrect because C to shining C, you need to start and end yeah. with C. But I, I caught myself in time. Yeah, that crossed my mind. It's like, oh, that's a trap there. Yeah. You might just slip that's up and trap. say catharsis. <laughs> it's a trap. Yeah, and so we end up leaving four clues on the board. Yeah. At the end of the Jeopardy round. And I, I wondered why. Like, obviously, they edit a lot. Yeah. So that we don't we don't see the we don't really get the actual pace of the game, 
as viewers they cut out even like you know half of a second if, in between the end of Alex reading the clue and someone buzzing in you know to just to tighten it up yeah tighten it up but that that was surprising to me that's a lot of clues to leave on the board yeah and no um no video categories i think there may have been mm-hmm. a few there might have been a video clue or two in there yeah not a, like a another person reading it in a clip kind of yeah. thing we get to the end of double jeopardy jennifer has 21,700 and has 15,200 so she has made it a game yeah that daily double paid off for her nice work Anne. And, and Jeff is in it at 5,200. Betting strategy does need to consider him given the distance between the other two. Yep. Uh, and the final Jeopardy category is vice presidents, and the clue is George H.W. Bush in 1988 was the first sitting vice president to be elected to the top job since this man 152 years before. So there are a couple of ways to uh, approach the answer in this in this clue Mm -hmm. one is you can just know the fact that the other person was the last one before hw or you can do the math and figure out it's the election of 1836 and if you happen to remember who won in 1836 great or and then you can logic it out too um but jeff guesses who is jackson loses almost everything uh ann also guesses who is jackson uh, which is both of those are incorrect, and Jennifer correctly uh, writes, "Who is Martin Van Buren?" Mm-hmm. Old Kinderhook. Yes, is he the only president whose first language was not English? Am I remembering that fact right? I think. Yeah, I think that's correct. Yeah, because he grew up speaking Dutch, um, and she wagered eleven thousand three hundred. So, oof, <laughs> thirty-three thousand dollar payday. Mm-hmm. So uh, that brings us to Tuesday. Yeah. So we have Shane Mangan, a strategy consultant from New York, New York. Ben Chung, a heart failure cardiologist from Chicago, Illinois. And uh, returning, we have Jennifer Quayle, a wine tasting consultant from Dowagic, Michigan, whose four-day cash winnings total $123,300. And another person from Chicago. Yes, they pulled a lot of Chicagoland people recently. Mm-hmm. That's true. So our single Jeopardy round categories are World Capital Attractions, Pink Puri, Celebrity Superfans, American History, 21st Century Companies, and Speak to Me of Fruits and Vegetables, which is, a, you know, a sentence that I want to say more in my it, life. Is it a, an allusion to something, or are they just being goofy? <sighs> If it is, I am not aware of it. Yeah. But it does Um, feel good to say. It does. Yeah. Um, I think Alex Trebek said, made some sort of remark about that, too. Probably. Yeah. Right away on clue one, American history, $200. We've got uh, the Jeopardy writers um, educating the American public. They're uh, Jeopardy so woke way. (laughs) Puerto Ricans are American citizens. The 1917 Jones-Shafroth Act made residents of this Caribbean island American citizens. And Jennifer rings in with what is Puerto Rico. There have been some news items recently with uh, folks not knowing that. That Puerto Ricans are American citizens. That Puerto Ricans are American citizens, yes. Yeah. Uh, Folks who should really know better. Well, that's been a thing. I mean, in, in West Side Story, 
in the song America, one of the lines is, nobody knows in America that Puerto Rico's in America. Oh, so you're it's so It's not a right. new thing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. Um, I don't know whether I should feel better or worse about that. Yeah, no, it's, I'm not meant to excuse. It's just like yeah. pointing out that, oh, look, we don't learn. Yep. Anyway, yeah. moving on. Uh, we get Daily Double number one at clue number five, the $1,000 level in American history. Jennifer hits it and wagers 1000 Did she have more than 1000 at that point? Yeah. Uh, so the clue is real name Mary. This maternal organizer of mine workers in the early 20th century was called the most dangerous woman in America. And uh, she re- correctly responds, who is Mother Jones? Yeah, we're related. Really? No. Really? No? Okay. All right. <laughs> I will say you, that about every me. Jones. All right. Cool. Because <laughs> Jones is an, uh, a very uncommon name, so I feel like I yeah. can get away with it. Yeah. Nice. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to think what other famous Joneses I should brace myself for for that joke for. Oh, John Paul yeah. Jones, Quincy Jones. Yeah. Any Any Jones. Anyway... Uh, so Jennifer really dominated the the first segment up to the commercial break. Um, they go into the first commercial break with Ben at 800, Shane at 400, and Jennifer at 6,600. Yeah. Uh, which would be a fine score if she just, like, checked out at that point, but she didn't. Right. It would still be uh, in the lead significantly yeah. <laughs> uh, by the end of the round. One thing I, I, I just wanted to point out real uh, quick, the $200 clue in Celebrity Superfans. Uh, Stephen Colbert is such a fan of this author's work, he aired his concerns with Peter Jackson about the elves of Mirkwood, and that's uh, J.R.R. Tolkien. Um, I've been a Stephen Colbert fan for as long as he, you know, however long ago he started on The Daily Show, way back when. So that clue to me, it it was very, like, nostalgic, because I've heard him rail about (laughs) uh, various Tolkien things many times in my life. Yeah. I don't know. I find his Tolkien fan status like kind of charming. Like he's so deep into it and just mm-hmm. like unrepentant, and he like wants to bring us in with him. You know, right? Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I I like it. I I am also a Colbert fan. I'm just gonna throw out there: good people are. Yeah. All right. Uh, so we get to the end of the Jeopardy round, and Jennifer has 9,200. Uh, to Shane's 3,600 and Ben's 3,000. Uh, so we go into the double Jeopardy round, and the categories are shark ootery, um, which I was sort of hoping that there would be more, like, that they would work in more of a charcuterie theme, but mm-hmm. I guess, but it was just straight shark questions. Double yeah. double O, occupationally named authors, behind the music, awards and honors, and all fall down. Yeah, I did not learn anything about shark meat, which was disappointing. Yeah. There wasn't even like, there wasn't even like some like, uh, like ham or sausage jokes in there. I know. Yeah. Or like what cheese you'd pair with shark meat. <laughs> I guess my my standards for the Jeopardy writers like they've they've set themselves a pretty high bar and I I am expecting like fully developed puns in every clue at this point um which maybe isn't a fair expectation of them but yeah with a name like Shark Ootery um just a big missed opportunity there yeah 
We get uh, Daily Devil number two, uh, clue number seven. Uh, it's the $800 clue in occupationally named authors. And the clue says, Mrs. Tittlemouse, Tom Kitten, and many other animal characters were created by this, quote, artisan. Uh, and Shane gets it pretty quickly, identifying who is Beatrix Potter, mm-hmm. the creator of Peter Rabbit and others. Yeah, most of the clues in that category, there were two routes in. You could either know who wrote the work, or you could figure out what occupation that's a common last name they might be going for. Right, which yeah. I, I think I got all of them, yeah. The the top two were Porter and Butler, not because I knew the knew the works, but because I figured it out from the clue. Yes, I, I, I got both of those in that way also. Daily Double number three comes at clue number 17 at the $1,600 level in awards and honors. Um, ben uncovered it and wagered 6000 And the clue was defenders of human rights like Nelson Mandela and Colin Kaepernick have won this organization's Ambassador of Conscience Award. And he just couldn't pull anything. Um, Yeah. Tough moment. The correct response there was, uh, what is Amnesty International? Yeah. And, I mean, he made the right move. You're more than halfway through the round. You're behind a person who at this point... You've at least watched her dominate one game. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know that you need to make a move and get, like, stay within reach. Yeah, a big bet was definitely the right move. Yeah. So the end of the double jeopardy round, uh, Jennifer has locked out the game at twenty five thousand two hundred. Shane has a respectable ten thousand four hundred, and Ben has a respectable ninety eight hundred. Not not bad scores in. Those are good scores. In in your average game across mm-hmm. the years but yeah alas yeah it is it's just rough to be one of the players who like your name gets drawn and it's your moment and there's a juggernaut on stage you know they they played a really solid game but you know i think as the week has gone on we've continued to see what kind of skills jennifer is bringing and it's just a just a tough draw uh so the final jeopardy category is oscar winning films the clue is the first words spoken in this 1970 Best Picture Oscar winner are Ten Hut, Be Seated. So Ben wagered it all and correctly responded, what is Patton? Shane wagered 9,200 of his 10,400 um, and came up with what is a bridge on the River Kwai, which is another military film um, a good bit earlier and yeah. uh jennifer got what is Patton. um she wagered a thousand but it didn't you know it didn't really matter it's a it's a lot game alex sort of wondered why she wagered small yeah although she couldn't really have gone really big without risking her lock yeah um, yeah she had uh 4800 to play with right yeah. yeah yeah for some reason i said what is platoon um oh that was significantly later yes it's a it is a military best picture winner. It is, yes. It is, right? One mm-hmm. best picture. And I yeah. think it's nineteen ninety. Yeah. Splatoon. Mm-hmm. Uh yeah, no, I there are kind of two ways to get to this one too. Like either you can know who what won Best Picture in nineteen seventy, which I think I've mentioned I'm I just 
made a list of all the best picture best actor and best actress winners since the beginning of the oscars and just studied them for the tournament Mm -hmm. uh so i was able to recall that Patton was the winner in 1970 uh but also that's a very like iconic scene in in film history if you know he's it's just him in front of a giant american flag Mm. speaking to speaking to the troops oh yeah that rings a bell yeah um which is parodied in i believe space jam when bugs bunny is giving them the pep talk before the game I'm impressed but not surprised by your, like, scene for scene recall of Space Jam. (laughs) Uh, If you weren't listening a week or two ago, was it two weeks ago, I think? We talked about that you you, uh, have a tradition of watching Space Jam every year. Um, Yes. Need to get back into that. Yeah. Uh, So Jennifer carries on winning massive amounts of money in a a fairly uh, impressive fashion Mm -hmm. uh, into Wednesday. Uh, when we have Denise Page, an office manager and literary agency assistant from Maspeth, New York. Doug Beckner, a scientific illustrator from San Francisco, California. And Jennifer Quayle, a wine tasting consultant from Dwajak, Michigan, whose five-day cash winnings now total $149,500, which officially put her above my seven-game winnings. That's... That's a good statistic yes also sorry you're <laughs> dropping down the rankings i know it's i had that realization when i did the my like vanity research into like oh i wonder where i do stack up it, it like i saw my number and i was like oh cool oh that can only go down ah uh. yeah <laughs> whatever so we get the categories in the jeopardy round um the second largest city in the state tv moms in full a hat tip to you taking a vowel of silence and there once was this man from which was a very cheeky category um yes with the the jeopardy writers writing limericks so i'll I'll forgive the charcuterie lack of jokes and i thought that category actually had it, it had more clues in it than most jeopardy clues seem to yeah because like it seemed like every every line of the limerick was its own hint yeah at least in my mind yeah that's that's true for i think just about all of them there was there was a little filler in in a few of them but for the most part they they had like three or four clues Mm -hmm. so uh so if you missed this show listeners uh the sampling uh the 200 hundred dollar clue there once was this man from brazil who kicked a ball with some skill Finding the Holes scored 1,200 plus goals and gave us two decades of thrill. Uh, the response being, who is Pele? Uh, Jennifer got that one. Yeah. Really, if the clue is just name a Brazilian soccer player, you're probably going to say Pele. Yeah. Right? The 1,200 yeah. plus goals, pro- like, going to point to Pele. Two decades, probably going to point to Pele. That's, that's all we're getting at. Yeah. Um, I had a lot of personal connections to clues in this game. Ooh, such as? All right. Well, you you might have noticed um, in the second largest city in the state category at the $1,000 level, mm-hmm, Boston mm-hmm. has a 400000 plus edge on this city whose pronunciation doesn't match up so well with its spelling. Uh, Denise rang in with my home city of Worcester. That's where I was born and grew up. 
And did um, she pronounce it correctly? And she did. And then Alex said, Alex said yes. And then said like one of the mispronunciations that's common. I can't remember if he said Worcester, which is incorrect. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're they're both incorrect. Or Borcester, but those are mm-hmm. the those are the common ones people sometimes imagine an H into there. Yeah. Oh, in the TV moms category, I guess maybe this isn't my personal connection, but at the six hundred dollar level. Uh, Tova Feldsche had felt. How do you say that last name? I don't know. Uh, had a recurring role as Rachel Bloom's mom, Naomi Bunch, on this musical comedy. Jennifer guessed what is Glee, which was incorrect. Um, but Denise rang in with uh, what is Crazy Ex Girlfriend. I have not seen a whole lot of Crazy Ex Girlfriend, but my sister is a Crazy Ex Girlfriend super fan like goes went to like there were a number of like live event like concert kinds of things that she's gone to she flew out to LA for one I think and after the show ended a bunch of the like costumes and props and things were auctioned off um to benefit the is it the National Alliance on Mental Illness yeah National Alliance on Mental Illness uh, so a bunch of the things were auctioned off, and my sister actually ended up winning one of the auctions and now has one of the costumes from the show. Nice. Yeah. So yeah, I've heard a lot about Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, um, so it was fun to see that in Jeopardy. Sweet. Yeah. Alex has quite a Borat accent. Yeah, I, I will agree, quite an accent. Not terribly uh, similar. <laughs> or like <laughs> true. Or, or good, but he certainly seemed to have fun with... Uh, the $600 clue in In Full, which says, Borat is subtitled, Cultural Learnings of America for Make Benefit Glorious Nation of This. And that would, of course, be Kazakhstan. Kazakhstan, yeah. Yeah, and Alex stayed in his accent um, to take to take us into the commercial break. Yeah. Um, yeah. Really committed to the bit. Oh, yeah. I feel like he's been a little goofier recently yeah i don't yeah. know that might be um maybe i'm just watching for it now i don't know yeah yeah the daily double came at the 20th clue in the in full category the 800 level jennifer hit it i feel like i say that a lot these days jennifer hit it and um wagered a thousand the clue was the military college of south carolina is in the full name of this school um and that's the citadel which she got, of course. We go into the end of the Jeopardy round. Jennifer has a lead, but not as nearly significant as it has been. Uh, she's at 6,200, Denise is at 46, and Doug is at 1,000. Mm-hmm. Um, so for the double Jeopardy round, we get the categories naval history, vocabulary, a Cinderella story, science, Italian authors, and coming out of your shell. We had another that I was connected to in the naval history category. Uh, mm-hmm. At the $1,600 level, uh, we had after the Civil War began, this damn the torpedoes naval hero gave up his Virginia home to fight for the Union. That is Farragut, and my church is located on a Farragut Avenue. I'm sure there's more than one Farragut Avenue out there, but like that's that's my street now. Nice. Um, nice. Yeah. Oh. Moved with his Virginian-born wife to Hastings-on-Hudson, a small town just outside New York City. There we go. What? <laughs> That's why the street is named after him. Nice. 
Now I know. Yeah, there we go. All right, an actual personal connection, not just like, oh, it's George Washington, and like, I know of a street called Washington. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, he, he lived here. We get Daily Double number two at clue number four. Um, in the Italian authors category, the $1,600 level, Denise hits it. And the clue is chapter one of this Umberto Eco novel begins as a sphere swayed back and forth with isochronal majesty. That last part's a quote. Unfortunately, she thought of the wrong Umberto Eco novel, guessing what is the name of the rose. The quote was supposed to lead you to uh, Foucault's Pendulum. And I think I saw Jennifer know it. Did you see her like sort of pendulum sway her hand as she was picking her buzzer back up? I don't remember that, but... It could just be how she was. And I don't think she was trying to, you know, like... um, Be a jerk about it? (laughs) Yeah. No, but I I think like... I think she was... It looked to me like she was thinking through the clue herself and like, you know, sort of... Sometimes Mm -hmm. you have like sort of physical, like tactile sort of connections with things. Somehow that connected that way. I don't know. Or I could be wrong and that's just how she was picking up her buzzer at that moment. Who knows? Yeah. Daily Double number two came at clue number 23 in the coming out of your shell category. At the $2,000 level, it is last name of British officer Henry, who invented a very destructive artillery shell at the beginning of the 19th century. Doug found it, so actually Jennifer did not get either of the Daily Doubles in this round. And he bet 6,000, smart bet. Unfortunately, uh, the best he could come up with is what is mortar, uh, but the correct response is shrapnel, mm-hmm. which I did not know. But now yeah. that makes more sense than just having a word that seemed to come from nowhere. <laughs> yeah, um, I didn't know either and also guessed mortar. I think, you know, he was thinking in the right direction that there must be some word we use now that is because that's the name of the inventor they you know Mm -hmm. and he and he was right you know but went for the wrong word um so at the end of the double jeopardy round we have jennifer with 19,400 doug with 4,200 and denise with 6,600 so it's a lock game again again yeah and the category for Final Jeopardy is National Historical Parks. So the clue is, established in 2015, the Manhattan Project National Historical Park has sites in Hanford, Washington, Los Alamos, New Mexico, and this Tennessee city. And I didn't really know how to tackle this one at all. No, Um, I, I had never heard of this. Yeah, oh, okay, that makes me feel a little better. But Jennifer had, um, so Doug guessed what is Tennessee Valley, um, probably thinking of the Tennessee Valley Authority or something, I don't know. With a $4,100 wager, Denise said what is Nashville and wagered everything but a dollar. Jennifer had a $2,500 wager and correctly responded what is Oak Ridge. So that takes us into Thursday. Uh, We have Kim Kenya, a freelance writer and editor from Queens, New York, Brad Cardwell, a communications manager from Baltimore, Maryland, and Jennifer Quayle, a wine tasting consultant from Dowagic, Michigan, returning with six-day cash winnings of $171,400. Goodness gracious. 
Yeah, she just keeps going. So um, we are a couple days past commenting on this, but she's a lock for the tournament at this point. Sure, so. yeah. F- usually five days is a lock. Yeah, yeah. But even four days with that much cash would have definitely done it anyway. Yeah. So. Yeah. And uh, single Jeopardy categories. The president had money troubles. Crushing it. Kitty lit title adjectives. Polynesian words. Female TV crime fighters and designer initials. And I felt like we saw some bouncing around, um, not because anybody was trying to bounce. It seemed like everybody preferred a top-down approach, but there was some difference in, you know, every who was comfortable in which category. And so somebody would get control of the board and move over. And so we would we went sort of approximately top down but like kept moving back and forth yeah there was sort of a there was a neg bait in kitty lit title adjectives at the 800 dollars level yeah um by eric carl the very blank spider cam rang in with what is hungry but the correct response is busy um mm-hmm. hungry is the caterpillar yes um, that was the first book that my daughter was able to quote unquote read mm. as in the spider had, one or the caterpillar one the ca- very hungry caterpillar as yeah. in she had memorized the words that we said oh and yeah and read it back it was very cute yeah that's charming when they start when they start telling you the stories from the books you've been reading them mm-hmm. find it super gratifying yeah <laughs> yeah we get the daily double pretty early clue number seven in the president had money troubles at the four hundred dollar level jennifer finds it and only wagers 600 yeah i wonder what was up with that which she had more she she doesn't she very rarely gets questions wrong so um i'm i'm not sure but i mean she has shown in multiple times that whether it's final jeopardy or daily double that if she doesn't feel comfortable she's not gonna bet a lot and even when she does she'll seem to feel comfortable she doesn't bet a ton anyway Mm -hmm. um she bet 600 and the clue is living on a hundred and twelve dollar per month pension after the white house this ex haberdasher refused any cashing in on the prestige of the presidency uh and the correct response was harry truman which she got yeah yeah she she got and alex believes he's a good guy so yeah thought the polynesian words category was interesting i uh you know they were they did a nice job of finding words that would be familiar but you know i think you know that's not i'm that's not a category that i think i've seen on jeopardy before i did see at least one person expressing dismay about the 400 hundred dollar clue mm-hmm. uh, which is this long flowing dress is for you and is in the letter u uh mm-hmm. and it is a muumu which we as white people say mumu but apparently there's supposed to be an apostrophe like in in the anglicization of it there's supposed to be an apostrophe between each pair of u's and in polynesian languages the the apostrophe is a glottal stop so it is a separate syllable the second u so technically saying mumu is a mispronunciation of the word Hmm. because you're leaving out two syllables oh that's interesting but i don't know if if you were to open a dictionary and you could find mumu spelled that way because it's been in english for a long time i don't know yeah i uh i'm curious how they 
came up with the clue in Polynesian words at the 800 level um, because I started trying to research it to see if it would be interesting for a deep dive and uh, ran into some confusion. The name of this Polynesian creator god also refers to an image of him or to a type of Polynesian bar. Uh, the correct response there is tiki, um, which is totally unambiguous for me because of tiki bars. But when I started looking up tiki in mythology, it seemed like it was maybe uh, the name of like the first human, mm-hmm. and I couldn't find much about tiki as a creator god, although maybe I was looking in the wrong places. Yeah, I actually, I, I don't know if it was related to this or somewhere else. I recently heard someone speaking about uh, Polynesian gods and like tiki is more prominent in certain places in Polynesia but there are Mm. a lot of different um, variations on the creation story and creator gods and different different gods in different parts of Polynesia okay so it could be that I was looking at like the wrong like regionally the wrong mythologies or yeah but they didn't specify which region it's just yeah it seemed a little bit. I mean, it, I feel like it's it's pinned with with the bar, um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but it seemed a little fuzzier than I'm used to Jeopardy being. Yeah. In Double Jeopardy, we have the categories biology, 21st century films, rhymes with a season, book of the year, country of the opera, and L or law, both of those syllables in quotation marks. I enjoyed Country of the Opera. I'm very surprised. Right? (laughs) Yeah, we started pretty easy with Carmen, uh, the correct response being Spain, which Jennifer got. Mm -hmm. Uh, Then Anna Bolena. Kim rang in with what is Russia, which was incorrect. Jennifer got the correct answer, which is England, and Alex clarified that that was Anne Boleyn. Then we had, I think this is the only opera. No, it's one of only two operas I've seen at the Met. Uh, Electra at the $1,200 level. That's Greece. Mm-hmm. The other opera I've seen at the Met is uh, The Magic Flute, um, ah. which I which I took my stepson to when he was like nine because he had been obsessed with like a, a recording that was like a children's audio program inspired by The Magic Flute. But the Met production really, really played up like the Masonic elements of The Magic Flute. And it was like kind of weird and i don't know it turned out not to be as i mean it was it was the magic flute it was fine you know but sure. like it was not an especially like kid-friendly event mm-hmm. and we had guillaume tell at the 1600 hundred dollar level kim got switzerland and i have a mental block on how you pronounce the one at the two thousand dollar level uh, i believe it is turando i have heard yeah. some people say turandot but the majority of people i've heard pronounce it as turando Th- that is that's how i would think to pronounce it, but I think I've just heard enough Turandot that I mm-hmm. now freeze up. Fortunately, I would not have had to produce the name of the opera. Um, right. The, the country is China, which mm-hmm. Kim also got. So Kim did really well. Uh, yeah. We get Daily Double number two at clue number 11 in the $1,600 level of the biology category. Kim hits it and wagers 2000 I would say up against Jennifer, you probably want to make as big a move as you can at that yeah. point. But, you know, if she's if she's not confident in the category, then, you know. But she did get it. Uh, the clue was the rhinoceros, the tapir, and the horse all belong to the odd toed group of these hoofed animals. The correct answer is ungulates. 
I was confident on that one because I have confidently asserted that the correct answer is ungulates to my pub trivia team a number of times had always been wrong. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so after a couple rounds of that, I looked up ungulates and now I, uh, now I, I can be confident on that, on that clue. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so she got, she got it and I was very pleased. Uh, she also found the daily double number three. It was at the $1,200 level in the book of the year category. The clue was a book titled This Year is subtitled The Hidden History of the Bayou Tapestry. Uh, and she identified that it was 1066, mm-hmm. the Bayou Tapestry and the Norman invasion of England. Yeah. So she wagered 2000 again there, which again, uh, especially at that point in the game, I would have bet more considering Jennifer had, was pretty far ahead anyway. Yeah. Maybe she didn't want to risk letting her get out of reach i don't know but yeah she had around ten thousand and some to play with who knows what the right choice would have been yeah and uh she was also the person who got the final clue of the round uh they they did clear both boards completely in this Mm -hmm. game Um, so the final clue of the game is in the l or law category and uh, the clue is the name of this Keats poem means the beautiful lady without pity. You can either know the poem or know French. And I guess you probably have to get a little lucky knowing French because probably there are some synonyms that would could translate. But she rings in correctly with La Belle Dame Sans Merci, which I read at some point in like a high school English class, I think. Hmm. I've never heard of it. I felt like Keats really spoke to my soul as a uh, very angsty teenager. Nice. Yes, he, he died young of the consumption. <laughs> the consumption. Um, <laughs> yes. Uh, it, uh, the, the the is probably a, a millennial affectation. They just sure. called it consumption. And like part of the thing with, with TB is that you would know that you had it and would die sometime over the, you know, die young over the next cu- couple of years and there was just nothing to be done. They would, you know, right. send you off to the countryside and you would... To convalesce. Yes, yeah. to convalesce. And uh, so he wrote very moody poetry about the fleeting nature of life and whatnot. Mm. Yeah, among other things. All right, so we go into Final Jeopardy with Jennifer at 24,000. It is not a lot game. Kim has 13,000. And Brad has 800. And the category is women authors. The clue is, in 1947, she testified before the House Un-American Activities Committee on how the film Song of Russia was communist propaganda. I should have gotten this one, but I didn't. Yeah, I didn't. I did not know that she did this, but it's the only one that makes sense. Yes. Yes, as soon as I saw the answer, I was like, oh, of course, of course. Yeah. So um, Brad guessed uh, who is Pearl Buck, uh, which was incorrect. Kim guessed uh, who is, she first said Ethel Rosenberg, interest which was a curious curious choice um but then she went for who is eleanor roosevelt which was also incorrect but jennifer was correct with who is ayn rand mm-hmm. which if anyone's gonna point at something and say uh you know accuse it of being communist if it's a female author it's gonna be ayn rand yeah have you read anything by ayn rand i have not no I have strong opinions, anyhow. Sure. I read all of Atlas Shrugged. 
because I told myself I would and I committed to it. Mm-hmm. And it is the same exact point made over the course of 1400 pages or whatever. Mm-hmm. And the story is the allegory for the for this same point about, you know, like people who are capable should not be beholden to people who are incapable just over and over again and you think you'd think that like okay she knows she made her point but then there's a hundred pages where a certain character who i i mean i realize it's been out for you know decades and decades but i don't want to give spoilers but a certain character just gets on the radio and talks to america and just explicitly states everything that anran believes and then it goes back to the story for another like 400 pages and like uh <laughs> i mean i haven't read her writing so i don't like but that that sounds like just poor writing and it's it is a pet peeve of mine when mm-hmm. authors have their characters give extended soliloquies that are basically just smoke screens for the author you know stating their opinion i, right. I got very annoyed at ian McEwen. um i read his novel nutshell and i've liked some of his books nutshell is inspired by hamlet but the protagonist is like a fetus in utero which sounds weird but i guess it kind it kind of works um but then it's at one point for some reason the fetus goes on this extended uh diatribe about professors and freedom of speech and how trigger warnings are bad Hmm. which is not like a credible thing for a fetus to have an opinion on right Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> and if you want to air your opinions, you should just get a podcast. That's, that's not what this mine. is for, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> All right. So yes, yeah. that was that was my uh, that, that's where my mind went when you described this. It's like that I, I find it very frustrating when authors do that. Yeah, I I had the same. Two things are coming to mind for me. One is the jungle. Yeah, if you've read it by Upton Sinclair. I have not, although I, you know, I feel like I know of it enough you, to answer yeah. trivia questions. Sure. Uh, so the whole story is this just tragic life of, you know, of Jurgis dealing with the woes of capitalism in the Chicago stockyards. And then the last 30 pages, he goes to a meeting of the Socialist Party. And the last 30 pages are just a speech by the leader of the local chapter of the Socialist Party outlining why socialism is good. Hmm. Which the whole, I mean, that's the point of the whole book yeah it's like i don't i don't need you to wrap this up for me i get it (laughs) you're saying that the conditions brought upon this person but through no fault of his own are bad and should be addressed i get it but i i believe we've we've also mentioned this with a a prayer for owen meanie i had the same feeling about that because i felt like i felt like that point was made like over and over and over and over Mm -hmm. again and then at the end again i don't want to give you know spoilers if you're ever going to read it but at the end, basically, Owen Meany turns to, you know, his buddy, the narrator, and is like, now do you see it? As the reader, I was like, yeah, I get it. I got it, <laughs> on, like, I got it, like, 70 pages ago. I know what yeah. you're getting at. You don't, like, I don't need the character yeah. to, like, look at me directly and say, do you get all the symbolism? Yeah. Yep. And, anyway. I'm with you. Yeah. Anyway, we're moving on to Friday. Okay, let's go to Friday. So we get uh, Lisa Murray, a grant writer from Ann Arbor, Michigan. Uh, Gene Fuller, a trauma surgery administrator from Irvine, California. And Jennifer Quayle, a wine tasting consultant from Dwajak, Michigan, whose seven-day cash winnings total $198,400. 
that is over fifty thousand dollars more than I won in seven games. It's a lot of money. Yeah, she like she, she has not had a low scoring game at all. Yeah, and I I felt for Lisa and Jean who um you know it's a Friday game and that means that they have sat in the contestant section watching the four preceding games mm-hmm. and then get called to go up for this one. Um, yep. Which must be demoralizing. I feel like Lisa came in with a like, I guess now I'm just here to have fun kind of affect. <laughs> you know. She did um, seem to be playing a bit loose. Yeah. But you know, um, whatever. Yep, that's fine. So we had the single Jeopardy categories around the Mediterranean, you're a bunch of cards, three letter words, house and home, movie exchanges, and Nellie Bly. My my spouse got a little cranky about the Nellie Bly clues, which he thought were consistently super easy. Yeah. Yeah. They I mean they were fairly gettable and they weren't they were they were more like they were questions kind of about something else. Yeah. You didn't have to know who Nelly I feel like the category was like educating us about this like significant right. uh like early twentieth century female journalist by asking us about stuff we knew while teaching us facts about her. Yeah, um, that's exactly yeah. how I felt, too. Yeah. So, yes, uh, at $400, uh, we had venturing south to report from this country. Bly reported American food is insipid in comparison to the local food, uh, which is basically a question, what country is south of the United States? I'm shocked um, they didn't give a map. <laughs> Maybe they couldn't label it also. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's the category where we found the Daily Double. Right at the end, close to the end of the round, um, Jennifer hit it at clue 28 in the $1,200 level, wagered 2000 uh, The clue was, while famously going around the world in 72 days, Bly met this author who told her how her route differed from Phileas Fogg's. And she got it. That's, uh, that's Jules Verne. Author of Around the World in 80 Days. Yes. Which I'm sure all of our listeners know, but in case yeah. you didn't, there you go. Yeah, Jennifer just, uh, she only bet 2000 on that clue, even though she was significantly ahead. I, I remember thinking, if she had bet 6000 and got it wrong, she still would have been in the lead. So, like I, you know, like I said, she doesn't bet big. Yeah. She, she's, not, she's not a big, a big better the way that we have seen, you know, obviously like James Holzhauer or, I mean, more recently in the, in the Tournament of Champions, all of us had the strategy of, if we can bet, we're gonna bet big. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yep. Uh, the movie exchanges category was fun. That was, was all dialogue from movies where you had to name one or both of the characters speaking. We had several of those clues right after the interview segment where Jennifer talked about watching the Star Wars movies more than 200 times. And uh, at the $800 level, there was the clue, two characters. Look, your worshipfulness, I take orders from just one person, me. Response, it's a wonder you're still alive. Um, And so Jennifer got in uh, to respond, uh, who are Han Solo and Princess Leia. Mm-hmm. So that was that was a good moment from the the best of the Star Wars movies. Is that is it from A New Hope? Empire or Strikes is Back. It Empire Strikes Back. Yeah. Yes. Okay. And we've already gone long on things, so I'll, maybe another time I'll talk about why it's the best. All right. 
I haven't watched them in a long time. I definitely had a like preteen preference for Return of the Jedi. Mm-hmm. Um, but mm-hmm. I think my adult assessment might be different. Yeah, I I had that same feeling because I, when I was mm-hmm. a kid, it was like, oh yeah, because it's good and the good guys win and everyone's happy and it's like yeah. exciting and whatever. But actually, yeah. Empire is just a better movie. Yeah. <laughs> so we get to the end of the Jeopardy round. Jennifer has eleven thousand eight hundred, which is more than ten thousand more than Jean at twelve hundred and Lisa at one thousand. Uh, so pretty firmly in command of the game. Mm-hmm. And we get the categories by popular demand, literary TV adaptations, place name etymology, word war Z, facts, and matter, which Jeopardy so woke. Yep. Yeah, facts like, matter. Facts um, matter. Although like the facts category, I don't know, like they had to do it to get their their joke in um but you know but it's literally like... just anything <laughs> <laughs> yes much like oddish you're like isn't that just what trivia is yeah um uh daily double number two was uncovered on the ninth clue um in place name etymology at the 1200 dollars level lisa hit it and wagered 2200 uh but yeah she made it a true daily double which right call the clue is from Indo-Iranian for place. These four letters at the end of a place name mean land of. Um, and she correctly responded, what is Stan? Yeah. And daily novel number three was at the $2,000 level in by popular demand, which Jennifer found and then also wagered 2000 despite being about $12,000 ahead of the others at that point. Yeah. The clue is, on January 25th, 1959, John the 23rd called for this, the 21st Ecumenical Council of the Church, but it sounded more like the first sequel, which is Vatican II, mm-hmm. which I have heard of and made me realize I don't know anything about it. I don't know a whole lot about it. I feel like the, the main sort of impact for... Uh, lay Catholics in America is uh, changing liturgy from Latin to the vernacular. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Um, and at some point I probably learned some other things about it. Mm-hmm. So we finished Double Jeopardy with a lock game for Jennifer. She has 27,400 to Jean's 9,200 and Lisa's 3,600. And they get the final Jeopardy category business namesakes. And the clue, it's the last name of the man who said our whole concept was based on speed, lower prices, and volume. My God, the car hops were slow. They all got it. Good job. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I way overthought it. I was like, would it be, like, is Sonic a last name? Because car hop threw me off. Yeah. And I was like, okay, what other, okay, so, like, what other restaurants or names well, it can't be McDonald's. That's too... too. Uh, yeah. And I, I, like, immediately dismissed McDonald's and went on to other stuff and then was like, well, I don't think Sonic was a name. That couldn't be it. Uh, Wendy isn't a name of a... Like, that's not the the person who founded it. That's Dave Thomas. Like, going through all this stuff and then it was like, McDonald's. I was like, ah, oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. I, I froze up a little bit because I knew um, the name Ray Kroc mm-hmm. associated with McDonald's. Um, yeah. And I don't quite remember how it was, but the McDonald's 
brothers were in there somewhere too mm-hmm. yeah ages and ages ago i read a book called fast food nation and uh, learned yes. a little bit more of the history of that whole phenomenon but i'm not sure i've kept retained a lot of the facts mm. anyway they all get it uh lisa has a lisa wagered 3500 so everything but 100 Jean wagered 1,998, and Jennifer wagered 3,000, which brings her uh, score up to 30,400, and her eight-day total up to $228,800. Just unreasonable. It is. It's incredible. So so we'll see if she can hold the podium on Monday. And if my count is correct, five of those eight days were lock games. That's unreal. She is a really good, solid, all-around player. Yep. I'm curious how she'll be able to do if she comes up against somebody who's more comfortable with the big bets. Mm-hmm. She's had a few people who got lucky, hit a daily double, and made and made a big wager and were able to convert it. Yeah. But I think, uh, yeah, we'll see. Do you have guesses about where we're going on the deep dive? Okay, um, it's hard because I don't I don't want to necessarily like just railroad you and be like, oh, she's only going to talk about religiously tangential things. Uh, it is not religiously tangential this time. Okay. And uh, I stayed away from New York because we've had a couple of New York centric. Mm-hmm. To- oh no, we had Borward. Uh, last time uh, yes yeah but before that we had uh, St. John the Divine and um, Tammany Hall mm-hmm. um, so I was like all right that's probably enough New that's, York for a that's while that's true we did have both of those yeah huh. yeah didn't think about that okay what were your guesses well one of them uh, world capital attractions from the Tuesday game mm-hmm. um, the Coptic Museum was the thousand dollar clue and Ooh, that's, yeah, that's that in Cairo yeah which but that is religiously tangential uh, Paradise Lost was another one. Maybe it's mostly because I just, I never actually read Paradise Lost, and I thought that would be a fun mm-hmm. one to talk about. Yeah, I, I considered it, actually. Um, uh, uh, another one in the awards and honors category, the Daily Double, talking about Amnesty International. I didn't know if maybe you wanted to go down the uh, Ambassadors of Conscience Award. I feel Ooh, like that would be that a... would be an interesting topic. Um, but, but no. Um... Yeah, I don't know that I have any other guesses then. All right. My, I uh, kept a running list while I was watching of ideas, um, which went all over the place. I thought about doing one about Mother Jones. Mm-hmm. I thought about um, Spike Lee, who would come up in the like celebrity superfans category. I thought about researching the Megalodon, um, mm. giant prehistoric shark. I thought maybe I should finally learn something about Farragut. <laughs> but what I ended up going with was from Tuesday's game, uh, the occupationally named authors category, the Daily Double, uh, which you commented on and I kept us moving. Um, yeah. Yeah. That did seem suspicious. <laughs> yep. Mrs. Tittlemouse, Tom Kitten, and many other animal characters were created by this artisan. Um, so we are talking about Beatrix Potter. And uh, let me say that I am indebted to the History Chicks podcast um, because they did an hour and a half long and a bit episode about her. Um, And, you know, I I read, I think, they read books. 
and websites. Um, and I read websites, but probably the same websites. Um, mm-hmm. So they did a lovely job telling her story um, at much more length than I can. So uh, we know her best, I think, as the creator of Peter Rabbit. But she was a really interesting figure. Um, oh. Born in... 1866 in Kensington in London, England. She was born to parents who were wealthy. Sort of recent wealth. It's not like old money wealth. Her two grandfathers both made fortunes in textiles. um, One in calico printing and the other as a cotton merchant. So her parents are uh, Rupert and Helen Potter. And uh, the podcast I mentioned... um, highlighted numerous times that that was a difficult relationship and like kind of a weird family Mm. so her relation like her parents were constantly judgmental there's lots of like anxiety about class and propriety going on it's sort of a claustrophobic environment she's really kept pretty isolated throughout her childhood and she was uh rupert was technically a barrister like a lawyer but there's not any evidence that he ever like actually practiced his profession Hmm. um like they were wealthy enough that they were sort of you know society people um kind of but not like part of the aristocracy or whatever and they're unitarians if you want something religiously tangential um well there we go yeah in the early days of unitarianism Mm mm-hmm So Beatrix was educated by governesses, which was sort of typical for well-brought-up young ladies in that time. Very, very secluded childhood. Um, So she she had three governesses over the course of her life. The first one is, um, I believe, a Scottish woman, uh, Miss Mackenzie. And she and Miss Mackenzie basically lived together on the third floor of the house, and Miss Mackenzie was just in charge of her full stop. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they stayed on the third floor of the house, and occasionally they would take a walk in the park, and every evening Miss Mackenzie would bring her down to say goodnight to her parents at the end of the day. Oh. Um, and she did not have any neighborhood friends. Eventually, when she's six, her younger brother Bertram is born, um, but, you know, she lives this very isolated early childhood. Mm-hmm. And she's growing up in London, but she's, uh, the family um, takes holidays in the countryside in Scotland in the early part of her life and later in the English Lake District. And those are, those are super formative, um, as you can probably imagine based on what she's, what she's famous for. Right. So later in her childhood, we have her second governess, Miss Hammond, um, who really nurtured and encouraged her talents for art and for nature. And she, those two talents that she's an artist and she's a naturalist um kind of go hand in hand throughout her life so miss hammond was able to um convince her parents that she was a talented artist and you know and a and a nice a a young lady in society and so art lessons would be appropriate you know that's sort of a a nice thing for a young lady to do Mm -hmm. So they hire an art teacher who worked with her for about five years, a Miss Cameron, who is mostly teaching her drawing. And then in 1883, she takes 12 very expensive painting lessons with a Mrs. A, we don't know who that was, who instructs her in oil painting. But B 
Beatrix Potter is a watercolor painter. She really preferred watercolor. Hmm. And uh, the History Chicks found some uh, some quotes ex- expressing that she, she appreciated some of the technical instruction about, like, working with the materials, but that she felt like her teachers sort of, in some ways, suppressed her, like, you know, her unique style. And that she, you know, she had her way of doing things. And, uh, I mean, clearly it worked for her. Mm-hmm. So as a child, her the, the time that she would spend in the country was the happiest part of her life. Um, as her brother got older, they became good friends, which, of course, they did. They basically didn't interact with anyone else. Or, you know, it's good that they did. So they would explore all over the countryside. Um, they would draw. They would dissect things that they found. Mm. Apparently, they found a dead fox and um, removed all the flesh and articulated the skeleton. You know, like made one of those like, like skeleton like display things, yeah. which is sort of morbid. Um, but I think comes from a uh, a passion for science and the natural world. Sure. And uh, throughout her childhood, she kept and, and I guess through her her whole life. Um, she kept this extensive menagerie of live animals in, like, in her living quarters. Or, like, you know, I think hmm. I, her parents maybe didn't know about it. Um, <laughs> they had, like, rabbits, and they had hedgehogs, and they had bats, um, everyone's favorite house pet. Mm, um, yeah. And uh, mice, insects, frogs, snails, all kinds of stuff, which they would keep. Um, and she would draw, and she would, like, write stories about so you can see this sort of passion emerging from, from an early age. And then eventually at age 16, she gets her final governess, um, Annie Carter. Beatrix is 16 and Annie, Annie Carter is only 19. And so Annie is her teacher, but she's also kind of her companion. Uh, and that friendship goes for their whole lives. A few years later, Annie leaves when she gets married um, and she ended up having eight children who were sort of like adopted nieces and nephews to Beatrix and a lot of her uh, her early children's writing like where she makes that final connection between art and nature and children's writing is in writing to these children hmm. she kept a coded diary starting in 1881 she was 15 years old she developed her own secret code. Um, it's like just a letter for letter. She had a symbol for each letter and uh, started writing a diary in her secret code, which was decoded at some point, I think about 10 years or so after she died. 800 pages of diaries. Um, yeah. Not a whole lot about like her inner emotional life, um, but a lot about her opinions about society and art and current events and just like the day-to-day activities and you know what's happening in her world Mm -hmm. um so uh you would expect a nice young lady growing up in victorian england to get married but sort of marriage age came and went she's got she's got these uh overprotective controlling parents and she is possibly because she had like literally no social interactions she's like painfully shy Mm -hmm. so she stays home she's caring for her parents uh she's now too old for a governess so it's just the three of them and servants and she uh her her passion for nature continues to grow in her 20s she gets really super interested in the study of fungi 
and she starts collecting and painting all the fungi that she can find. She paints them in minute detail, studies them really carefully. Um, eventually, she becomes such a mycologist that she prepares a paper called On the Germination of the Spores of Agaricinii, mm-hmm. which, which she cannot present to the Linnaean society, to, you know, to, to, a, to a society. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but her scholarship is, like, extraordinary, um, yeah. and her paper is presented at a meeting of the Linnaean Society in 1897 by one of the mycologists of the Royal Botanic Gardens. Hmm. Yeah, she can't even be there. Women aren't allowed at the meetings. Ah, um, uh, of course. Yeah. Yes. So so she's in this, like, super claustrophobic, uh, controlling relationship with her parents, um, and she's interested in a little bit of financial independence. And at some point, her brother, Bertram, who's still close with her, although he's managed to sort of get out from that tight family unit, suggests, like, gets her involved in, in the idea that she can sell some of her art. Mm-hmm. So she, for the first time, sells some art in 1890. Um, she sells some art for use on greeting cards, and she illustrates a book of rhymes and starts getting a little money of her own. And the idea that this is a talent that she can use to earn money for herself would get her a little, which can get her, you know, a little bit of freedom and flexibility. The first version of Peter Rabbit, she writes as a letter to Noel Moore, who is the son of her, one of the sons of her former governess. Um, So Annie Carter was the governess. She marries Mm -hmm. a Mr. Moore, and so now she's Annie Carter Moore. Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, Noel Moore is recovering from scarlet fever, you know, one of those those childhood ailments that um, the rise of antibiotics has mostly, mostly stemmed. People still occasionally get scarlet fever, but pretty seldom right that's the one that the boy has in the book the velveteen rabbit where they have to burn all of his toys afterwards Um, oh yes that's that's right yeah so he is uh he is convalescing after scarlet fever and he's you know he's supposed to be resting and she's writing all these letters to him and she writes an illustrated letter telling the story of four rabbits flopsy mopsy cottontail and peter and uh doesn't think again of it as far as I mean maybe she does but uh it's not until about eight years later that she asks if she can have her letter back for borrow it back for a little bit because she has come up with the idea of having turning it into a book and having it printed so she self-publishes Peter Rabbit uh she does it with black and white illustrations um and a colored frontispiece Black and white because the color printing is more has always been uh, way more expensive more more expensive than black and white. Yeah, so she has these black and white illustrations. She she publishes it herself, um, but then through a friend, this book finds its way to a printer, um, Frederick Warren and Company, who um, agree to publish Peter Rabbit and ask her to do it in color, and it is hugely successful, like hugely, hugely, hugely successful. Hmm. I think the first run is 8,000 copies. It sells out right away. And then like multiple printing runs after that. So like overnight, she's a very successful author. And then she self-publishes another book while she's in the midst of this huge success. Um, I sort of love this. Uh, She has this work, The Tailor of Gloucester, which is about like little mice helping a tailor who has to 
produce a very fine, I think it's a coat, in a short amount of time. And they were like doing his work for him in the night. And she has written it with all of these rhymes and she likes the rhymes. And she's worried that if she gives it to her publisher, the publisher will take out all the rhymes. So she Mm. publishes it herself because she wants Mm. the rhymes in. And then her publisher sees it and is like, this is great. I'd like to publish it. Could I take out some of the rhymes? (laughs) Um, So she was right. uh, But yeah, she does let the publisher publish it, but with fewer rhymes in 1903. She's still unmarried at this point, but then she falls in love with her editor, uh, Norman Warren, of the Warren family who owns the printing house. Um, So Beatrix Potter and Norman Warren become unofficially engaged in 1905. But her parents object to the match. They think that because he's a printer, he's like beneath her station. Hmm. They uh, consent to let her wear the ring that he's given her, um, but they never like announce the engagement. And then a few months later, unfortunately, he dies quite suddenly of pernicious anemia. Yeah, so she would she would continue to wear that ring for the rest of her life. Hmm. So she's had several books at this point and is doing financially really well. She's she's, you know, got some freedom. And what she does is she buys she buys herself a place to live. She buys land in the Lake District. Probably somewhere that she and Norman were planning to live together. But she pursues that life that they envisioned for themselves. Um, She buys a place called Hilltop Farm in Lancashire. And she goes there and she starts writing. And she writes several books in quick succession. Um, The Tale of Jemima Puddle Duck and The Tale of Tom Kitten are two of the better known ones that come out of that period. Mm -hmm. Uh, Through all of this, she is an early pioneer in merchandising. So if your house is full of like Pete the Cat merch... Right. Or, like, Curious George merch. Like, we can blame Beatrix Potter for this. I mean, probably somebody would have come up with it anyway. And I think there may have been people doing this before her. But she was phenomenally successful with this. Licensing products with her characters. Um, so we had, like, manufacturers producing Peter Rabbit dolls and Peter Rabbit board games and, you know, Beatrix Potter character tea sets and all kinds of stuff with her with her art and her characters on them. And money goes back to her publisher um, and to her as well. And so she's got like a solid income coming in from merchandising these characters that she's created. Hmm. Yeah. So she's living on this hilltop farm. She, um, there's a tenant farmer there who uh, keeps the farm going as a working farm. You know, that's something, you know, she has passion for the natural world, but, you know, not experience in running a farm. So she's, She's got this tenant farmer doing it and is sort of passionate about this region and wanting to protect the land and, you know, grow her farm. Um, So she works with a a local solicitor, William Helis is his name, to um, buy contiguous pasture to support this farming endeavor. 1909, she starts expanding her farm. She starts to take an interest in breeding and raising um, the Herdwick type of sheep. And uh, she gets interested in the local solicitor. So in 1913, she's almost 50, and she gets married for the oh, first time. Oh, hey. yeah. Yep, to William Healis. So she becomes Beatrix Potter Healis. Hmm. In World War I, we have, um, we have some drama. Uh, 
her royalties are not being paid and she's having to really push to even get like an accounting of what she's owed. Um, she's, you know, she's flexible about when the, when the money will come in, um, but she wants to know what's selling. And as she continues to push for this, it eventually comes out that there's been some shady bookkeeping and the publisher is near bankruptcy. And so what she does is write them another book, which hmm. basically bails them out. Ah. Yeah. So over the course of her life, she writes 20-something. She writes 20-something like small books for children. Um, I've mentioned some of the famous ones, um, Peter Rabbit and uh, Jemima Puddle Duck and Tom Kitten and, you know, those ones. But there's 20-something of them, um, all well-loved. Mm-hmm. And she, uh, her creative period as a, as a children's author ends around, like, 1922, around age 56. She doesn't seem, you know, un- unhappy to finish writing. She just seems like she's, you know, she's finished kind of what she wanted to do. Her passions start to shift. And she really devotes herself to raising sheep and to just being in this natural environment in the Lake District, which she loves, and to philanthropy. She's really devoted to protecting this region um, and gets really into conservation, starts getting involved in efforts to improve life there. Um, she gets really involved in um, bringing in a nurse in that in her area to, uh, to improve health care because she thinks people are going too far to, to access the health care they need. She's buying up land, which eventually uh, on her death gets donated to the National Trust um, to kind of keep that land pristine in perpetuity. And uh, in 1943, she predeceases her husband at the age of 77, I think it is. So that's that's not the deepest of deep dives. I think I've told you where to find a, a much lengthier podcast exposition of her life. Um, but I really enjoyed getting to know a little bit more about about her um, yeah you know i knew she was a very successful children's author i think she gets sort of dismissed as like kind of a little twee or whatever um she's uh in a world that's not super friendly to this she is like a very passionate naturalist and also a, a reasonably savvy businesswoman who comes out of this kind of difficult family situation and really like makes her way into independence yeah yeah that's really interesting i, I believe my grandmother gave us the Beatrix Potter collection for our daughters. And so they're on our shelf and I I knew nothing about her. Yeah. Um yeah, she's an interesting figure. Yeah. So, if you're ready for the quiz, Oh, I'm always ready. Uh we have um I don't have I don't have a fun pun, um but in tribute to um the the passions and work of Beatrix Potter, we have a quiz on mycology watercolor and anthropomorphism okay yeah so broad scope um yes indeed (laughs) yeah (laughs) so beatrix potter's tales were actually liked because they're not especially didactic i later read but but they teach us lessons about things like listening to your mother and controlling your temper Mm -hmm. uh what what figures anthropomorphic tales bring us teachings like Slow and steady wins the race, and beware lest you lose the substance by grasping at the shadow. Oh, that last one was a very good one. Um, 
am going to uh, I'm just gonna say Aesop yep you're right it was Aesop those are uh, morals from Aesop's fables um, which were passed down by oral tradition and so you get different morals for uh, depending on where you look um, yeah uh, he's said to have been a slave in ancient Greece um, and the fables were passed down and later sort of collected by different people yeah the second one was I think about um, like the dog and his shadow um Mm. so like the dog who's like carrying the like the steak or you know whatever the meat in his mouth and um sees his his reflection in the water um and wants wants the meat that the that the reflection dog has Mm. um yeah (laughs) i don't know that story yeah it's interesting yep all right so 10 points for you question two Watercolor paints have a transparent quality, but there are other water media as well. Um, What other water medium is similar to watercolor in many respects, but made opaque by the addition of white pigment or chalk? Made opaque by the water. I feel like Thorsten likes to ask this kind of question, although I don't know whether he's asked this specific medium. Ooh, the only type of like paint type medium that I can think of that I actually don't know what it's made of or why it's called it is acrylic. So I'm going to go with acrylic. Mm, no, that's incorrect. Uh, it is gouache or gouache, uh, G-O-U-A-C-H-E, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. which is which used to be my guess every time I uh, had one of those learned league questions about like, here's like the ingredients of a, of a paint medium of a artistic medium like what what is you know name the medium um, yeah. which has come up at least a couple times so yeah gouache is a uh uh like an op- a water soluble but opaque paint and it was considered like an inferior medium in the 19th century um because the thing that they would the white that they would add to it was lead which would discolor when it came in contact with the um, industrial revolution, like bad air. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so just lots of lots of toxicity all around. Um, so sure. yeah, watercolor watercolor would keep its color, but the the lead in the gouache would would uh, turn black and like discolor the whole painting. Um, so that was considered you know an inferior medium in the hmm. in the setting. Interesting. All right. Okay, so question three. Although fungi can take many forms, the most familiar is the mushroom. The above ground portion of a typical mushroom includes a stem, a cap, and a ribbed portion underneath the cap, which has what aquatic sounding name? Uh, Aquatic sounding name. Hmm. Could be reef could be gills probably looks like gills i'll go with gills you're correct yay it's gills. yes um i was looking at different types of mushrooms and found i think it's uh chicken of the woods i think is that it's like popular because it has no gills chicken um, of the woods yeah hmm. um which i've seen on like steakhouse menus i think all right so you're at 20 points. Yeah. Um, Yay. Question number four. The artist Cassius Marcellus Coolidge 
was producing anthropomorphic work around the same time as Beatrix Potter, but they were pretty different as artists. Coolidge is best known for a series of 18 anthropomorphic oil paintings with titles including His Station and Four Aces, Looks Like Four of a Kind, and A Bold Bluff. The series is better known by what name? Oh, oh, is there a specific name for it? I Yeah. Oh, because I mean, it just sounds like dogs playing poker. It's dogs playing poker. Okay, great. I'm not <laughs> okay. going to let you agonize over whether to say that as your response. Okay. Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. So, so there are there are 18 anthropomorphic paintings of dogs, most of which are dogs playing poker. There, 16 were like commissioned as like an advertising thing, and then one was before the set of 16, and one was after. But like as a body of work, they're called dogs playing poker. Um, okay. But each has its own individual name and none of them are called dogs playing poker Hmm. um all right uh so you're at 30 um question five uh beatrix potter wasn't the only keen observer observer of nature using watercolor um but many artists used watercolor as a medium for preparatory sketches in advance of making the complete work in oil paint or some other medium name the american ornithologist who's 435 preparatory watercolors for his magnum opus are housed at the New York Historical Society. American ornithologist, you said. Yes. I mean, I have but one guess, so I'm not going to bother spending time Uh, trying to think of anything else, so I'm going to go with Audubon. Yep, you're right. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Nice. Yeah. (laughs) You're at 40 points. All right. Um... And how many would you like to wager for final? Ooh, I feel like this is the highest point total we have had going into final. I think so. I'm tempted to do it all. You know what? I'm going to do it all. Let's see if I can see if we can get to 80. All right. Good choice because you're definitely going to get it. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) No pressure or anything. Here is your final question. I wasn't able to get all three categories in, but I've got two of them. Uh, Watch out for banana peels when racing against what anthropomorphic mushroom? (laughs) Uh, I mean, that would be toad. That's toad. Yeah. And you are a winner with 80 points. Yeah. (laughs) Throwing me a bone there at the end. Yeah. You you crushed this quiz. Thank you. Well, congratulations. Thank you. Um, and uh, I hope our listeners got some of those, too. Yeah. Yeah, I thought that was... I, I feel like you have found the the correct calibration for difficulty, so... Yeah. That's our show. Thank you for spending your time with us. It is a joy to share Jeopardy with you all. Yes, it is. Be sure to subscribe and rate and review uh, on whatever uh, medium you are getting our podcast from. Tell your friends who watch Jeopardy. Um, that's our that's our best way of finding new listeners, and we love new listeners. Um, yes, we do. You can find us on social media. Uh, we're on Facebook at Potent Potables and Twitter at Potent Potables One. And we'll be coming back to you next week to talk about another week of Jeopardy. So until next time, may your minds be quick and your buzzers be quicker. Mm-hmm.